If you have your Bibles tonight, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. We've had an amazing day today. A lot of fun with the games. A lot of fun with the sessions in here. I'm sure you also had a great time uh, with your friends during the free time as well. Our time together in God's Word has also been weighty. It's always serious when we look at God's Word. We talked about that last night. It's God's Word. It's God speaking to us. But we've looked at this heavier topic of death and the temporal nature of our life. And Tonight, we will once again continue to think about that topic. And so before we do, I know we just prayed, and I also know this is the part of camp where maybe starting to feel a little bit more comfortable. There's a lot of things on your mind. I want to make sure that we continue to focus on the main thing, because tonight's theme is so important for your soul. So let me pray again as we think of God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing every student here to hear from you. Lord, there are students here that love you, that you are using this week to mature them, to give them greater confidence in you, to help them walk more like Christ. Lord, there are students here this week who claim they know you, but through their life they have no real desire to follow you. There's others here who just outright say they don't, whether in ignorance or lack of clarity or rebellion. Lord, I pray you do your work in the hearts of every student here tonight. You can do so much more than me or any of the small group leaders here can do through your word. We ask that you do that. In Christ's name, amen. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's Free breakfast was winding down. 7.40 a.m. bell, signaling the start of the first period, loomed. The daily morning affirmation that day on the school's website came from the late self-help author, Lewis Hay. Life supports me in every way possible. Lori Alhadef dropped off her 14-year-old daughter, Alyssa, at the sprawling campus, home to more than 3,000 students. I love you. She told Alyssa. That day, teachers collected applications for the National English Honor Society. Members of the tennis teams raised money with the sale of hoodies, yoga pants, and other items. Classmates exchanged Valentine's Day carnations, sold for a dollar in a cafeteria, and at lunchtime, some students left $60 deposits for graduation rings. School day went on as normal. But before the last bell of the day could ring, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, whose motto tells students to be positive, be passionate, would be the scene of one of the deadliest mass shootings in modern U.S. history. 2.19 p.m., a gold-colored Uber vehicle dropped off Nicholas Cruz at the school he once attended. A school employee recognized him. Cruz had been expelled for an unspecified disciplinary reason. Now he was back with an AR-15 rifle concealed in a soft black case. The employee alerted a colleague that the former student was walking purposefully 
toward the school building. Like many schools across the U.S., they'd had many active shooter drills. This was protocol. Crews entered the building at the east stairwell. He pulled a rifle out of his bag. And many of you know the rest of the story. That year, just three years ago now, February 14th, Valentine's Day 2018 was a horrific day. Many of you maybe saw videos on the news, read about it. 17 people killed, including a geography teacher, a senior who had a swim scholarship, a football coach, and the very young lady we mentioned at the beginning of the story. It's a heavy topic when these happen, especially as a high school pastor, especially for you as a high school student. And that these tragedies happen, they happen far too often. And when they do happen, we see it everywhere on the news. So here's the question I want to ask you in this study of death. We're talking about our own death for, us, for the first two sermons. But let's look outside for a moment. How should we think about death in general that we see in the world? I mean, how should we respond when we see a, a school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School? Or for those of us from Southern California, Los Angeles, when some of our own students were on campus, when a young man killed two others and himself back in November of 2019? Or how do we think about it uh, when Stephen Paddock takes a gun from his 35th floor hotel room and kills 52 at a concert in Las Vegas? Or how do we think about it when a man from Austin places bombs and packages and murders people that way. Or let's even go from the murder to the natural world. When countless numbers of people die from a hurricane or a hundred people die from a collapsed condominium or tsunamis in the Pacific or earthquakes in Mexico kill hundreds or even thousands. Unfortunately, these tragic events happen all the time. They always find them on the news. And the question is, How should we respond when we see death so catastrophically and so horrible and at times so evil and at times so confusing? How should we respond? Surely an outrageous response uh, is required. And there's all sorts of things uh, that people do in response to this. So there are political responses. You hear about shootings. You hear about we need to limit guns. We need to blame the officer. We need to march or we need to equip teachers. We need to defend our rights. There's the I told you so response. Why that should be happening in Vegas? Well, those people should have known they shouldn't have been in Sin City. There's blame. So we'll blame this party or that party or the NRA or red tape or the left media. Others will blame God. How could a God who's so good and loving and sovereign allow these things to happen? I think whatever your response is when we see these sorts of events occur... No matter how you respond, there's something all of us share together. We all respond when we see that with this deep-seated feeling that this is wrong. How How did this happen? And if that's your feeling that this is wrong, I want to tell you that the Bible says that's right. That's a right response. It's right for you to be confused And just feel like this should not happen. Why is that? 
Well, it's because of the worth of every single person. So in Genesis chapter 1, we learned that God creates the world. And God creates the world good. It is a good earth that reflects the goodness of its creator. And it says that you and I were created in his image. And so therefore, whether Christian or non-Christian, there is an inherent worth we assign to each person as an image bearer of God. We think about life and we think about human life different than the way we think about animal life. One author says this. He says, we feel as if humans have a privileged place in the world compared with other lives. We feel joined to the world as, it is, as if its beautiful places and delicious foods and range of experiences are meant for us to use and enjoy. Here's his proof, ready? He says, dogs don't sit and gaze at the colors of a sunset. Cats don't build high-rise condos with a view of the coast and walkable beach access. Gerbils don't study physical laws, master basic elements, and work with them to create technology, plan buildings, or compose paintings. We live as if our relationship with the world as humans is special. The world feels like a place where we are known, where our actions make a difference, and we, where we are, if not indispensable, at least irreplaceable. We, we know as people that we are above the rest of the creation, as image bearers. And so when death happens, we can't help but feeling this is wrong. You don't mourn when the exterminator clears your house of cockroaches. But you learn about Auschwitz. And you just think, that is horrific. Terrible. Our hearts cry out, this is not right. And so if it is not right, if this is not the way it was meant to be, then why does it happen? And what should we learn from it? Because I guarantee sometime in the next few months we'll hear another one of these stories. And all the same things will come out. And I want to help you to think biblically and respond rightly to them. And the way we ought to think is the way that Jesus teaches us to think in Luke chapter 13. If you're not there yet, turn to Luke chapter 13. This is a text that's at the height of Jesus' ministry. We know in chapter 12, it says the crowds are so large that the people are stepping on one another. The Pharisees hate Jesus, but at this point, he is too popular to kill. Which brings us to Luke 13. If you want to write a title for this sermon, it's this. Death is a warning. Death is a warning. Let's read our passage together. Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable 
a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, till I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This passage helps us answer the question of how should we think when we see tragedy in the world. The tragedy of death. And he gives two different examples. One of them talks about this, this event where Pilate mingled the blood of these Galileans. The idea being these Galileans were at the temple sacrificing and they were killed there in the middle of doing a very spiritual act. The second event would be what we call a sort of freak accident or a natural disaster. This tower, this construction project, we don't necessarily know exactly what happened, but men were working on this tower. The tower collapsed and they died. And so, how do we think about this? We sort of have two categories, right? Acts of evil, human acts of evil, and sort of freak accidents, tragedies, both resulting in death. And the question is, how should you and I think about them? Tonight, I want you to learn lessons that Jesus gives us from death. Lessons that you should learn when you observe death. Lessons that you and I should take in and consider and apply to our lives as we live in a world filled with death. Notice, by the way, not one of those lessons is a question about God's responsibility. Everybody here assuming God has a hand in it to some degree. That God, we know, is sovereign. God didn't take his hands off. So what do we think about this when God allows these sorts of things to happen? Student, there for you to learn some lessons. Lesson one is this. Death is impartial. Death is impartial. Is impartial. Tragedies show no favoritism. There's no partiality shown here. There is a belief that the Jews had at this time. It's a belief we could see here in the text. They seem to suppose, they seem to think that bad things only happen to bad people. That you get what you deserve. We see this in the Bible, people who believe this. right? Job chapter 4, Job's friends, one of them says to him, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? Or in Job 8 verse 20, another says, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. Job's friend, if something's bad happening to you, it must be because you did something wrong. In the New Testament, we see the same thing even with with the disciples of Jesus. John 9 verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this blind man or his parents? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? It's the same many have still today. Some would call it karma. Right? You get what you deserve. You do good, life will go good for you. You do bad, life will go poorly. Her life is good because she is such a good person. His life is terrible, and he's probably getting what he deserves. 
Perhaps you've thought of that before or you think that way. It's almost like a perpetual belief in Santa Claus. Are you on the nice list or are you on the naughty list? The problem is we know, even outside of the Bible, experientially, that karma is not true. We know it's not true. We know it's not true biblically. You know it's not true in your own life. You work hard in class. And the student who barely works hard and cheats gets better grades. Sleazy businessmen get Fortune 500 companies. Hard workers get passed up. Godly women miscarry, while others with a healthy baby abort their baby. Tragedy and death happens to all people, regardless of good or evil, regardless of morality. Now there is truth that Galatians 6-7 does say, you reap what you sow, and that is a basic principle. But not all suffering has to do with sin. Not all reaping occurs in this life. You've been there before. Life has gone bad for you. You suffered loss. And you think, it probably was because I missed that quiet time. Or that sin that I did last week is probably the reason why life went bad now. Maybe. It says God does discipline those whom he loves. There is a natural penalty in the world for sin. But not always. You don't know. And extreme suffering death does not only happen Jesus says, do you suppose you think they were worse? He says, no, this, this happens to all people. Friends, we know that also because all people are sinful. Let's move to our second lesson here. Lesson number two you need to learn from tragedies. When you see these on the news, when they happen in your community, you need to learn this lesson. That sin is horrific. That sin is horrific. Jesus asked the question, do you think? He says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? And the answer is, they did think that. That's absolutely what they believed. But the truth that Jesus is hammering is what? He says, no. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Verse three, no, I tell you, they were not. Do you think these 18 were worse? No, I tell you. Why is that? Because we know, friends, that all people are sinners. All people have rebelled against God. Romans 3, 9 and 10, Paul unpacks this. He says, what then? Are we Jews better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So you can't play this game of who's better and who deserves more because Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have turned their back on God and rebelled against him. And so you got to get that sort of thinking out of your head that, that when you heard like a few years ago about the shooting in Las Vegas or even a, a, decking, a, a decade ago, the, the shooting at the club in Orlando, that these necessarily were punishments. Maybe, but we also see tragedy happening to godly, righteous believers as well. And the reality is that all people are sinners. You see, there is a problem that Jesus is pointing out in this crowd. And it's a problem that you and I have as well. The problem is that they view their sin as small. 
that we sometimes view other people as worse sinners than us. I wonder if you're here this week with no real love for Jesus and no real obedience. Like, you know, you mouth off and say whatever you want. You live however you want. But because you go to church a little bit, because you're not as bad as other people that you've seen, you think, well, at least I'm better than them. Friend, that is such foolish thinking. And the Bible gives no category for that. A better level of sinner. Romans 3, 9 to 12, again, we already said, all are under sin. Verse 10, as it is, right, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside from him. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is actually the very argument in James 2 that James gives for not showing partiality. Because all are equally sinful. And why is that? Because all have rejected God. Not just broken rules, but rejected him personally. Now let's, let's think about this for a second. Why does Jesus bring up sin and repentance here? Why is that? Why in this, this discussion about tragedy and death does Jesus bring up sin and repentance? And I want to make a, a theological connection for us. And for that, we need to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be back in Luke 13 shortly, but we we want to turn now to Genesis chapter 3. Because we need to figure out why he brings up sin. Let's recap. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. The world is good. As we mentioned earlier, he creates man in his image to rule on his behalf, his vice regent, little kings to rule on behalf of the greater king. And we know God gives them a good life. He gives Adam a good job. He gives Adam and Eve to each other. And then Adam and Eve do something horrible. Many of you have, many of you have a very, I don't know, maybe a, a childish thinking on Genesis 3. A cartoonish thinking that you've got from your children's book that God said, don't eat the fruit, and, you know, one bad apple, as it were, ruined everything for them. And they just took a bite, and, oh, they shouldn't have done that, and it was bad. Do you realize what Adam and Eve did there? It was a rejection of God. It was rejection of God personally. It was their desire to come out from under his kingship and try to put themselves on level with him to make themselves rulers as well. It's the same thing you and I do when we sin. We know the commands of God and yet we disobey in an attempt to put ourselves on the throne of our own lives. And so what Adam and Eve do is not just break a dietary violation. What they do is trying to overthrow God. This is cosmic treason. Now notice the fallout from this. We're in Genesis 3 now. We'll go back to Luke 13. We're in Genesis chapter 3. Take a look at verse 14 because there are 
curses then. There's punishments that go out. So in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You're cursed. There's a punishment. In verse 15, someone is going to come one day to crush you. Take a look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Again, what you see is a a curse. So there's a personal punishment for the serpent. There's a personal punishment for the woman. There is as well for Adam, but there's something different that happens here. Notice verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. What happens here? What God does in this moment in response to the horrific nature of rebellion against a perfectly good God. What's in the words of Romans 8.20? It says that the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It was subjected It was uh, twisted. It was changed. It it was no longer in its natural good state, the natural order of the earth, but it was changed to reflect that sin has entered the world. Listen to the way that John Piper puts it. He said, God disordered the natural world because of the disorder of the moral and spiritual world. That is because of sin. In our present fallen condition, with our hearts so blinded to the exceeding wickedness of sin, we cannot see or feel how repugnant sin is. But the world now shows us. You understand that, Christian. You understand that, student. That the world has been changed. That it might reflect how awful sin is. How terrible it is for creatures to rebel against a perfectly good God. How wicked acts of sin are. And so, when there is a hurricane that wipes out others, and when a building falls in Florida and kills a 100 people, and when we hear the horror of tragedy and health defects, and all sorts of issues. When we see school shootings, when we see these sorts of things, these are pictures that show you to a small degree how awful your sin is against God. How wicked and ugly it is to sin against the perfectly holy God. To have a God who has offered you a good life and to reject it. Those things are small Portraits of how horrible your sin is. 
And student, you need these portraits. Because all of you suffer from the same disease. You minimize your sin. You call your sin not lying. You say, I fibbed, I stretched the truth a little bit. You don't say, I experienced hate and murder in my heart. You say, well, that person made me lose my temper. You blame shift your sin. You never confess any sin, some of you. Your sin is always someone else's fault, some experience, some time of the day, some state of life that you were in. It wasn't really my sin. You cover up your sin. You go, yeah, I'm sorry I did that. I'll change next time. We all minimize our sin. And what these sorts of events do is they show us the reality of it. That our sin is much bigger than we realize. That your sin is much worse than you think. That these things, when we see them in the news, show us how awful lust is and how awful it is when we use our mouths to tear others down and how terrible it is when we sneak behind our parents' back and disobey them and how corrupt it is when you lie to your small group leader. How wicked gossip is. Student, I would just ask you this. I know you feel deeply when you see those things on the news. But do you feel anywhere near as deeply about your own sin? Some of you are here at camp this week and your staff people have been praying for you a ton. Some of you have been praying for you to get saved. I sent an email out to our staff last week just about students in our group. My, my heart was heavy. I know many of your leaders feel the same way for you. Let me tell you why some of your staff people pray for you with tears. It's not because you don't know you're sinning. We know you know she don't care at all. You could care less about your sin. You don't feel deeply about it whatsoever. Soon I would just ask if you don't feel deeply about your sin... I just see no evidence that you feel deeply about the Lord at all. Some of you would do better to just stop pretending. Others of you need to wrestle. Why am I so fired up when I see these events around me? And I do nothing but try to hide the sins that I see coming out of me. Lesson two, these events show us how horrific sin is. Number three, lesson three is that judgment is real. Judgment is real. Let's get back to Luke 13 if you're not there. 
Luke chapter 13. We've already covered. Jesus says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? He says, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Repent. What does repent mean? Repent does not just mean say, oh man, I've got these bad habits I need to change. Repent is for you to see your sin, to agree that sin is evil, and then to turn from it. I had someone in the last two weeks, multiple people, in my office, who wept over sin, but did not turn from it. It is to repent. He's calling you to see your sin and actually repent. And if you do not repent, what does Jesus say? You will likewise perish. What does likewise mean? Does that mean you likewise will have a tower fall on you? You likewise will be murdered while offering worship? No, he says the likewise, the fact that you will perish. And Jesus here is pointing not just to perishing in this life, but eternal perishing. You don't turn from your sin. You don't feel remorse over your consistent, gleeful rebellion against God and turn from it? And you think, you think Pilate marrying people at the temple's bad? You think a tower falling you on is bad? That is nothing compared to the wrath to come. Oh, that is so, you would wish that it was a tower compared to the wrath to come. Because you will absorb forever the wrath of God the punishment from the God that you personally rejected, the God that your parents introduced you to, the God that your youth leader preached to you about, the God that your small group leader introduced you to, you rebelled against him and you will likewise perish if you don't turn from your sin. Friend, death is calling out to you every single time. That every single time there's a sudden death of a celebrity. Every single time one of these influencers dies, it's telling you there is a worse fate for those who do not repent. And so earthquakes, floods, wildfires, these are small annoyances compared to the wrath of God. Wrath is coming, friends, for the unredeemed. Wrath is coming for those of you who don't turn to Christ. Wrath is coming for your unsaved friend that you're thinking about at home. Wrath is coming for that false Christian that's sitting next to you now. This is real. And let me, let me push this further. Because you've heard this sermon before. Friends, God is not joking about his wrath. It is his character to judge the wicked. And so what's the lesson? The lesson of death is that judgment is real and that God will destroy the wicked. Lesson number four, what have we seen? We've seen about the sinfulness of all men, talked about the horrors of sin, we've seen judgment 
The last lesson is this. God is gracious. God is gracious. For those of us who are Christians, who have trusted in Christ, how amazing is it that when we see these tragic acts of death happen, that we can think, what a small picture of what I deserve on my best day. What a portrait of what God has rescued me from. That that Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation. On our best day, those things are small, small pictures of what we deserve. God is kind. God is gracious. And God is also gracious because he's patient. We read the parable, verse 6. It says, a man had a fig tree and planted his vineyard and came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And for you, you, some of you are very much like this fig tree. That for years and years we've been looking for fruit and there is none. And it's not like you haven't had a Bible. It's not like you haven't had sermons. It's not like you haven't had access to what most of the world wish they had. You've got Bibles and stacks of Bibles in your room. And yet there is no fruit in your life. There there is no evidence of truly following after Christ. And so why should it use up the ground? Cut it down. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure that if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. What an amazing portrait of the patience of God. That God would have enemies who every day reject him, who boast in their rejection of them, who whisper to their friends about their rejection of him. Yet he would say, let it alone a little longer. Not just let it alone and see if they come to me, but I will actively continue to do what's best for them. I will have parents who have a tight budget so they could get to camp. I'll have people donate money to get them to camp. I'll make sure that all their transportation continues safely so they could hear the word. I'll put people in their lives who have no reason for caring for them whatsoever other than the fact that I've put it in their heart to share the gospel. 
I'll have grown adults spend a week living in bunk beds to share the gospel with them. How amazing is the patience of God? How good is it that tonight, if you have rejected God, that God's posture towards you, even though the wrath of God abides on you, His posture is calling you to repent and you to turn. Even over there where the whispers are happening, calling you to repent and turn. Even tonight, He calls you to turn to Christ and no longer pray or play Christianity, but follow Him. How amazing is this God? He is so good to us that all your sins could be wiped away. But that patience has an expiration date. Then it should, verse 9, Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, cut it down. You live in a strange age in our country. There's an invention over the last two or three decades. It's called helicopter parents. It's parents who protect you from everything. It's parents who will write to your teacher if you are a week late on your assignment and explain why you should get full credit. It's parents who will teach you to one day argue on the phone with the bill collector even though you were late. It's parents who have taught you, yep, you did something really bad, it's bad, it's bad, and will rescue you last second. Friends, God is no helicopter parent. We talked about last night how God's nature does not change. And his nature is this. He will utterly destroy all those who reject him. And there is no last second ditch effort that he just goes, well, uh, okay, they're half-hearted doing it. If you do not repent, you will perish. And so you have to stop playing this game. And you have to really think about if you've turned to Christ and trusted in God. Because friends, the good news is that this wrath that should abide on you, this portrait of God's wrath that we see in all these tragedies in the world. You know what's amazing about death and wrath? Is God saves us from death and wrath because Jesus experienced death and the wrath of God. That Jesus goes to the cross and dies in your place. He, he dies as a substitute for sinners. He takes for three hours the wrath of God for your sin upon him so that if you turn to him, if you trust in him, all of that sin would be wiped away from you. Friend, do not leave here tonight with the wrath of God still on you. Every time you see death, praise God that it didn't happen to you and that it's a, it's a call out to you to flee from the eventual death to come. Because that's who God is. He is the God who is far more merciful to us than we deserve. Father, thank you for tonight.
God, I confess that we do not feel as deeply about our sin as we ought to. We have self-centered, self-righteous thinking about our rebellion towards you. And we ask for forgiveness, Lord. We ask that for those of us that love you, who've been playing with sin, that there'd be a, a sobriety and a brokenness. God, we thank you that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us. That if we're in you, there is no wrath that abides upon us. Lord, there are some here tonight who your wrath abides upon them. I, I wish I could change their hearts. Their parents wish they could change their hearts. Their small group leaders wish they could change their hearts. But we can't, Lord. We'd ask that you'd help them to follow you. That you would help sinners tonight turn from their sin. That they'd see the weight of the punishment they deserve. And that they would cry out to you, be merciful to me. Lord, how good it is to know that you forgive all who cry out to you for mercy. We ask for you to do our work in all our hearts tonight. In Christ's name, amen.